Hello, I'm Michael Spence. I'm President and Provost here at University College London. And this lecture is a part of our activities to remember the Holocaust and its victims and to contribute to improving understanding of the Holocaust and especially of its ongoing effects and ramifications. And so our portico will be lit purple on Friday to mark the day. And we have a number of other events during this week, including a talk with a Holocaust survivor, Ruth Posner, organized by our University um, Jewish Society. Well, as you probably know, the theme of this year's Holocaust Memorial Day is ordinary people. And that reflects the fact that the terrible events of those years happened to people just like you and me, but were also perpetrated by people just like you and me. And I think that's particularly important to remember in a university, given our um, particular proclivities. You know, we tend to be people who believe in high culture and the Weimar Republic was a great flowering of high culture and yet the Holocaust happened. We tend to be people who believe in education and of course so too did the Weimar government and indeed there was even in the Weimar constitution a guarantee of religious tolerance in education and yet the Holocaust happened and the Holocaust impacted, affected, slaughtered people just like you and me and the people who are responsible for that were people just like you and me. But I think if there is a moment of hope, it's that also we know from that period and beyond that ordinary people just like you and me can play a bigger role than we might imagine in combating prejudice. And part of the point of remembering is to rededicate ourselves to that purpose. Well, today's lecture shows just how enormously resonant the Holocaust remains in modern Europe, with the battle over its memory and legacy being a key theme in Russia's war against the Ukraine. The Jewish history of Ukraine is rich and fascinating, and we have a terrific speaker to look, to, to look with us through this complex history and what it means today. William Blacker is an Associate Professor of Ukrainian and Eastern European Studies in our School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies. He works on the history and culture of Ukraine and the wider region, and is a translator of Ukrainian literature. His work also includes Holocaust memory and memorial in Ukraine, and how that's changed in the post-war years through the Soviet era and following Ukraine's independence in 1991, in particular, the memorial at Babanyar. This is going to be a fascinating lecture, and I'll waste no more time before handing over to Uliam, except to say that there will be time for questions at the end of the lecture, and you can submit those at any time via Slidos. Details of how to do that should be in the chat shortly, but welcome, Uliam. Thank you so much, uh, Michael, for this uh, introduction, and thank you also to the organizers of the, the lunch hour um, lectures for inviting me to mark um, International Holocaust Memorial Day. Um, as Michael alluded to, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we are living through, uh, once again, a major war in Europe. Um, so I think it's very, very important, maybe more important than ever, to look back at the Second World War and the Holocaust and see what we can learn from those events, events which were after all, to a large degree, focused in uh, Ukraine. Uh, my talk today will focus partly, uh, partly on Holocaust commemoration, but the focus will be broader. Um, I'll be talking about the uh, how Ukraine as a Jewish space 
um, is remembered in Ukraine today and what significance that has in the context of uh, Russia's war on Ukraine. And Ukraine obviously is a place, uh, a very important place in Jewish history. Um, and Jews have a very important place in Ukrainian history. These are stories which cannot be told uh, separately. The story is not always a happy story. Uh, it's obviously Ukraine was one of the main uh, locations for the Holocaust, the epicenter of the so-called uh, Holocaust by bullets. Um, but it was also a place that saw pogroms in the early 20th and late 19th century and in previous years as well, in the 18th century and the 17th centuries. At the same time, Ukraine has also been a place of Jewish life and of Jewish culture, of Jewish ideas. Um, Ukraine is the birthplace of Hasidism. It's really uh, the epicenter of the phenomenon of the shtetl. Uh, it's a place in the early 20th century where modern secular uh, Jewish culture, Yiddish language culture flourished. And a great many Jewish writers, artists, thinkers, political figures are connected uh, in various ways with Ukraine, from writers like Shalom Aleichem and Josef Roth to Bruno Schulz or Paul Silan, through to political figures like Vladimir Zev, Jabotinsky, or Golda Meir. This diverse and complex history, however, is uh, has been obscured in Ukraine for a long time. It's been poorly understood often by Ukrainians themselves, but also in many ways by Jews too, whether in Ukraine or uh, in the diaspora with connections to Ukraine. And one of the main reasons for this, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons I will suggest in this talk today is empire, uh, is Ukraine's status as a colonial possession of first the Russian empire and then uh, also the USSR. So how exactly is uh, empire responsible for certain lack of knowledge and understanding of Ukraine as a Jewish place, as a Jewish space? Um, there is an idea that I've heard certainly repeated by uh, Ukrainian and also Jewish uh, intellectuals who were part of the dissident movement in the, the post-war period in the later Soviet period um, that as a result of Soviet propaganda, uh, Jews and Ukrainians were ignorant not only of one another's history, but each of them individually of their own histories. So there's this combination of a certain lack of self-knowledge combined with a lack of uh, dialogue and a lack of knowledge of the other. Because of Ukraine's history of belonging to different empires, different states for hundreds of years, for most of its history being divided between different states. Um, Ukrainian sense of their own history has often been quite fragmented and uh, distorted. Something similar we could say about uh, Jewish history of the region. Jews obviously living in different states, in different empires, split among different uh, political and cultural contexts, leading to a certain uh, fragmentation of what Jewish history as uh, a coherent uh, entity could be. The historical narrative imposed under the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union are obviously very different in many ways, but in some key ways, uh, very similar. This was a historical narrative that had a central distinctive place, neither for Jews nor for Ukrainians. 
both groups which sat further down the imperial hierarchy, both in different ways, um, but certainly in some similar ways, seen as inferior groups, as backward groups, um, not as legitimate collective historical subjects. Uh, on the one hand, somewhat ridiculous, the focus of many jokes, uh, but also on the other hand, threatening, the focus for many uh, conspiracy theories. Ukrainian and Jewish historians and intellectuals, when they did try to construct their own stories uh, from their own cultural uh, points of view to correct the position assigned them in the imperial narrative, often did so with little regard to one another, uh, with essentially their closest neighbors. As is often the case in identity projects that are built in opposition to an overbearing imperial narrative, anti-colonial narratives, they are often defensive, they are often inward looking. When Ukrainian and Jew, Ukrainians and Jews did look beyond the national context, uh, and they often did do that, uh, they looked towards universalizing, universalizing ideas such as socialism or communism. In the early 20th century, or on the other hand, uh, we should also talk about the tendency toward assimilation into uh, whereby the uh, cultural origins are foregone um, or um, relegated to a secondary position in order to assimilate into an identity with greater prospects. And that happens in, in the case of both Ukrainians and Jews in, in different empires. When we get into the Soviet period, the Soviet nationalities policy, which sought to recognize nationalities on the one hand, but also exacerbated the situation by forcing people into national boxes and kind of uh, dividing off the different national groups from one another in a hierarchy of nationalities within the Soviet Union, uh, even indicating this in people's passports. Uh, and all of this subjugated to what was still, nevertheless, a Russo-centric, Moscow-centric Soviet master narrative, uh, in the context of which dangerous marks of distinctiveness that might lead to separatism were frowned upon, removed, uh, often quite forcibly, uh, through violence. For Ukrainians, the accusation was often of bourgeois nationalism, and for Jews, increasingly Zionism. This has implications after the war for the memory of the Holocaust, which was virtually erased from uh, Soviet memory culture, uh, the central place in which was given to Soviet victimhood and also victory over Nazi Germany, over fascism. Uh, and the Holocaust itself, the specific fate of the Jews, did not have a place in Soviet memory culture. Um, and pursuing commemoration of the Holocaust could again lead to these accusations of nationalist particularism and was associated with Zionism as well. The restrictions, Soviet restrictions on Holocaust memory are, I think, a good example of how an imperial narrative precludes self-knowledge and dialogue uh, between Ukrainians and Jews. The story of the Holocaust was, after all, a story of Nazi-occupied territories of the Soviet Union. In other words, primarily a story that affected Ukraine and Belarus. Um, which, of course, happens to overlap with, to a large extent, with the old pale of settlement from the Russian imperial times, and where the majority of the, the Jewish populations in the Soviet Union still lived. The erasure of the Holocaust was, of course, first and foremost, um, 
an erasure of Jewish history, but it's also an erasure of Ukrainian history. Uh, and it was accompanied by a broader erasure of the specifics of the Ukrainian experience of World War II, which was an experience of victimhood under the Soviets as much as uh, victimhood under the NATO. What's more, the story of victimiz the victimization of Jews by Ukrainian nationalists during the war was also silenced uh, under, this, uh, under this narrative. Ukrainian resistance was dismissed as fascist under Soviet rhetoric, but the fact that Jews were targeted by nationalists uh, and the complex and difficult Ukrainian-Jewish relations during the war simply disappeared from view, meaning that very urgent conversations between Ukrainians and Jews had to wait decades to happen. When we get to 1991, then we have a situation where in Western Europe, countries have been slowly, painfully, uh, trying to come to terms with the Holocaust with varying degrees of success. But in the Soviet Union, it's been ignored uh, and silenced and the necessary debates have barely begun in Ukraine. One of the most inter interesting books about um, the Jewish history of Ukraine is a book by the historian Shimon Redlich, uh, which is called Together and Apart in Brzezhane. So it's a sort of micro history about a small town in Galicia, Western Ukraine, and it's the story of everyday life, everyday contacts between Ukrainian and Jewish neighbors, uh, and how even with this intimate physical proximity, certain invisible borders exist, and these can at some point turn into deadly divisions. And in some ways, this serves as a microcosm of the larger historical and cultural memory of Ukrainians and Jews, which are so intimately connected and intertwined, but often have been separated uh, and often break out into these discursive conflicts. Because of all this, in the first years of Ukrainian independence, there are no Holocaust museums, there are very few memorials, there are no museums of Jewish history and Jewish heritage, uh, and Ukraine has a very, very rich physical heritage, um, was often neglected. The level of knowledge and understanding among Ukrainians um, of the Jewish past of the times was very low. Of course, we're talking about a country going through profound political and economic crises where roads and hospitals can barely be built, never mind you know, museums and memorials, but still, this is not just a question of, of economics. At the same time, I think it's fair to say that the, um, the understanding of Ukrainian identity, history, and culture among Jewish diasporas with roots in Ukraine, and also among Jews in Ukraine itself, has been somewhat incomplete or fueled by certain stereotypes, and has often also been influenced by the Russian or Soviet narrative, whereby the Ukrainians are seen as a backward group who are barely perceived as worthy of cultural, worthy of the status as a, as a cultural and historical interlocutor. So I think these broader imperial frameworks, whether Tsarist or Soviet, are clearly at play here. Uh, and this is certain, certainly part of the discourse in contemporary Ukraine. Uh, and here, if you just bear with me, I'm going to share some slides. One second. Um, there's a, to illustrate this, there's a telling scene in 
uh, a contemporary novel by a very popular writer called Yuri Vinichuk, set in Lviv, um, which deals in part with the history of the Holocaust in Lviv, and one of actually quite few contemporary Ukrainian novels which do treat this topic. In the novel, there's a scene where the protagonists discuss why there is no the site of the Yanishki concentration camp, which functions during the Nazi occupation in Lviv, is so poorly marked, so poorly commemorated in the city. And the answer that's given is that this was because of the Soviets. The Soviets erased the history of the Second World War. They erased the history of multicultural Lviv, of Jewish Lviv. And as the, as the character said, Lviv bears no responsibility for this. We were just part of a colony. The colonizers decided everything. So everything that I've been saying up to now is certainly part of the cultural conversation in Ukraine, this idea um, that memory of the Holocaust, memory of Jewish Ukraine is profoundly affected by um, this, uh, by the Soviet, by Soviet propaganda. Of course, there is definitely something to this, but it's not the whole story. We must also allow for the influence of inward-looking nationalist thinking, the desire to save the nationalist anti-Soviet resistance from the stain of Holocaust collaboration is an important factor. And there are also centuries of prejudice born of everyday social, cultural, political, economic tensions. Um, and Ukrainians and Jews are, I think, despite empire, quite, quite capable of ignoring one another outside of that context. Having said all this, and, and and whatever the reasons for it are, the story of Jewish Ukraine is not only one of mutual ignorance of, uh, of being separate and apart. Uh, today's Ukraine certainly is no longer a place where oblivion about the Jewish past rules, and indeed the Ukraine of the past has not always been a place of conflict and persecution. There are now new sites of Holocaust memory in Lviv, for example, Babinyar in Kiev, which was mentioned in the introduction, has been the focus of a lot of commemorative activity in recent years. Um, today, while anti-Semitism still exists, it's still a problem in Ukraine, as it is in, in many European countries, uh, Ukrainian Jews are generally seen increasingly as an integral part of the Ukrainian civic nation, and they themselves, uh, by all accounts, increasingly feel that way. And much as Russia would like us to think that Ukraine has been overrun by the far right, Ukrainian society has in fact quite resoundingly rejected far right parties repeatedly at the ballot box. So the story of Ukraine is recently more one of civic nationalism, where it's not at all strange for a Jew to feel proudly patriotic about Ukraine or indeed, and indeed fight and indeed die uh, for, uh, for Ukraine in the current war or that the broad mass of those who identify as ethnic Ukrainians might support overwhelmingly a Jewish president. Mistakes are still being made, of course, and blind spots still exist. And there was a very clear illustration of that on the 1st of January this year, when the uh, parliament of Ukraine uh, tweeted a quote from Stepan Bandera, the far-right uh, wartime World War II nationalist leader, um, whose organization was responsible for violence against Jews. A tweet that was at least uh, subsequently and fairly quickly deleted. Um, and that instance shows that things are never quite straightforward. Things are always a little bit complicated in the Ukrainian Jewish uh, uh, dialogue in that encounter. Uh, despite attempts often to 
paint them as simple and as straightforward and as black and white. Um, historians and commentators, I think, still tend to focus either entirely on the negative or entirely on the positive, focusing on conflict and prejudice or on the signs of progress. Um, but in truth, only the only way to understand all of this history is to accept and embrace its ambiguity, its paradoxes, and its contradictions. A few examples of that. If we look at the 19th century Ukrainian literary classics at the birth of the Ukrainian national uh, idea, uh, we see anti-Semitic images in some of the work, classic works of Ukrainian literature, even in the works of the national poet, Taras Shevchenko. And these are moments that often come up in debates over Ukrainian anti-Semitism uh, historically. Um, at the same time, we can look at the same period and see a public letter of 1858 signed by leading Ukrainian intellectuals with protests against uh, anti-Semitism in the Russian imperial press. And one of the signatories being uh, Taras Shevchenko. And the letter outlining specifically that it's specifically Ukrainian intellectuals who are best placed to understand the problems and suffering of the Jews within, within the empire since they have an in, intimate historical knowledge of interaction with Jews and being Ukrainians. Later in the 19th century, uh, we see the work of uh, Ivan Franco, one of, another great canonical Ukrainian writer who writes harsh critiques of Jews as economic exploiters of, Ukrainian, of Ukrainians. Um, Critiques that often border on, on the uh, anti-Semitic, use of anti-Semitic uh, tropes and images. And yet at the same time, the same writer will dedicate entire novels to sympathetic Jewish characters. Uh, he will explore Ukrainian Jewish solidarity in his prose and journalistic work. He will collect Jewish folk songs and translate them into Ukrainian. He'll publish Jewish authors in his journal. And he'll write an epic poem called Moses. Uh, in which he compares the Ukrainians to the Jews, and which in, uh, in the Soviet Union was banned for its uh, Zionist implications. And not without reason, since uh, Franco was an admirer of uh, Theodor Herzl. Uh, and you can see here, uh, there's the cover of a 2016 edition of this poem, which is published together with the Ukrainian translation of Herzl's uh, Jewish State. After the First World War, there, were, there was an attempt to create a Ukrainian nation state along the lines of the others that were appearing in Central Europe at the time, Ukrainian People's Republic. Um, and this period is often seen from outside of Ukraine through the prism of the pogroms that accompanied the complex multilateral conflict at the time. Yet the Ukrainian People's Republic did attempt to carve out uh, a space for Jews within it. Um, it was, it had a, a minister for Jewish affairs and it even had uh, money, its currency had uh, the Yiddish language printed on it. The Ukrainian People's Republic also, although it existed only for a few years, was a place where Jewish arts and culture began to flourish. Later, when, if we look to the Soviet Ukrainian dissident movement uh, after the war, a movement which was very much focused on the protection of Ukrainian national culture and language, but it was also a movement that was outward looking in some senses, and some of its leading members, 
such as the dissident Ivan Zuba risked severe punishment to attend and speak at illegal Holocaust commemorations uh, that took place in Kiev at the site of Babinyar. And Zuba in 1966 made a very famous speech calling for reconciliation between Ukrainians and Jews and a better understanding of one another's history. So we can see that throughout their cultural history, Ukrainians have looked uh, at Jews, considered their relationships with them. In the same way, if we look at the cultural history of Jews in Ukraine, we can see the same process coming from the other direction. Um, sometimes we have to read between the lines a little bit, but it's certainly there. So if we look at famous writers who came out of Ukraine, like Shalom Aleichem, for example, whose works are often, whose works are very famous, but often misinterpreted and misunderstood as being about Russia. They are about the Russian Empire, but they're set in Ukraine. Uh, in his stories, the peasants who appear frequently are Ukrainians, uh, and isn't the famous story of Hava and Hvedka who fall in love uh, across religious divisions a story of Ukrainian and Jewish closeness and distance. Um, there are a few writers who, uh, in any language, who describe small town, small town central Ukraine in the late 19th century in the way that Sean Aleichem does, and he was influenced in doing that by the work of Ukrainian writers, uh, Nikolai Gogol, a writer from the same part of Ukraine as Sean Aleichem, or not far, uh, was a big influence. Uh, and Sean Malikum knew the work of the Ukrainian national poet Tara Shevchenko and could read it and even recite it. Um, at the same time, when we read Sean Malikum's work, it's very difficult to find Ukrainians as Ukrainians, named as such. Uh, and these works are, are kind of oblivious to the nature of these characters, their needs and the, their desires. They're quite one-dimensional, they're quite stereotyped. Uh, and it's something, this is a tendency we find in other uh, Jewish writers, if we go to the other part of Ukraine, outside of the Russian Empire, Yosef Roth, who came from Galicia, author of the Radetsky March, uh, who grew up in a town just on the border between the Austro-Hungarian and Russian empires, uh, brilliantly captures multicultural Galicia in his works, uh, inserting Poles and Jews and Ukrainians and others into this kind of nostalgic, almost carnival parade. Um, in stories like The Bust of the Emperor, for example. Um, but yet, again, the Ukrainian characters remain somewhat caricatured, finding evidence, them, evidence of them as Ukrainians can be a little bit difficult. Although, of course, Yosef was famously skeptical of all national projects uh, and, and increasingly nostalgic for the multicultural empire. Some Jewish intellectuals did play, play, pay very close attention to you uh, Ukrainian questions, Ukrainian culture. So just as Ivan Franko was inspired by Theodor Herzl's Zionism, Vladimir Zeev Jabotinsky was inspired by the figure of Taras Shevchenko. He wrote an essay on the importance, on the importance of the national poet uh, and his liberatory stance, anti-imperial liberatory stance, which for Jabotinsky could fend off and help, help fend off Russian imperial chauvinism on behalf of all peoples of the imperial south, including uh, Jews. Ukrainians and Jews, Ukrainian Jewish writers, intellectuals have not always perceived or written about one another as others from opposing sides of a dividing line, uh, but they've also participated in the same uh, cultural processes. 
So if we look at the uh, Ukrainian People's Republic period from 19, 1918 into the early 1920s, we see the, appear, the appearance of the Kulturliga, um, and we see the state institutions, these new state institutions being uh, established under the Ukrainian uh, nation state, uh, keen to engage Jews, the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences, which is set up, uh, has Jewish research centers, the uh, and Jewish artists are among those of multiple ethnicities who are working in the Kiev Art School or the newly established um, Ukrainian National Academy of Arts. And here you, you see a very interesting process whereby Ukrainian and Jewish artists who've previously uh, perhaps struggled to express their specific national culture in, in art and culture are coming together and doing something very similar, trying to exp express and develop and articulate a modern and modernist, mostly vision of art and culture, but with a national specific. Um, and so we have uh, artists like, for example, Manuel Schechtman, uh, who lives and works in Ukraine for a long time, and who is a student of the Ukrainian painter Mikhail Boychuk, who works at the Academy of Arts in Kiev. And you can see that here Schechtman's portrayals of pogrom victims is influenced by his teacher, Boychuk's uh, uh, depictions of Ukrainian peasants. And there are lots of examples of this kind of uh, interaction and mutual influence between artists of this uh, period. Going, these institutions become absorbed into new Soviet ones when the Bolsheviks seize control of Ukraine. Uh, they tend to lose their autonomy. The Kulturliga, for example, loses its autonomy. Uh, but these processes do continue to a certain degree. And if we look at the 1920s in Soviet Ukraine, we see um, writers turning to, not entirely for the first time, that Jewish writers start writing in the Ukrainian language. This it does happen in the 19th century, but certainly for the first time in any significant way. And so we see writers, important writers of the period uh, in uh, Kharkiv, which was the capital of Soviet Ukraine at the time, turning to uh, the Ukrainian language. Traditionally, Jewish writers would have written uh, either in Yiddish or Hebrew or the uh, dominant state languages in the states that they existed, that they, that they lived in, Russian, German, or Polish, um, generally when we speak about Ukraine. But here they start to write in Ukrainian. Uh, so figures like Leonid Pervomaisky or uh, Raiz Troyanka, among the sort of modernist avant-garde poetic circles of the time. And if we look at Kharkiv, Soviet, Soviet culture in Kharkiv, where uh, we had for the first time Ukrainian language as the state language, Ukrainian culture being endorsed by the state, something which was, you know, Ukrainian intellectuals at the time fought hard for in the context of, this, of the new Soviet state. Um, we see, again, a great mixing of Ukrainian and Jewish artists living in the same buildings, working on the same theater projects, cinema projects, and so on. Um, but this is not only a story that's happening in uh, Soviet Ukraine, if we look at uh, interwar Poland, you can see a similar uh, mixing of uh, cultures within the same artistic milieu. So, for example, the artist group is a very interesting uh, example where you had artists of Polish, Jewish, and Ukrainian background, often mixed backgrounds, working together in the same uh, groups. And a good example being the married couple, Margit Reich 
Shelska or Selska and Roman Selsky um, here, who were two artists who were, who were working in the interwar period in the avant-garde um, period, and then also together afterwards in Soviet Ukraine when Lviv becomes part of Soviet Ukraine. Uh, he was he was of Ukrainian origin, she was of uh, uh, Jewish origin. And more recent times, you can see also this tradition of Ukrainian language Jewish literature continues. So poetry by the likes of Mosei Fishbein, one of the most important poets of the kind of around about the period of Ukraine becoming independent, um, or uh, Boris Khersonsky, very famous poet from Odessa, who previously wrote in Russian, but now writes increasingly uh, in Ukrainian as a political choice and very much a kind of spokesperson for Ukrainian culture abroad, but also for uh, kind of Jewish-Ukrainian dialogue within uh, the country. So whichever way we look at, this is a story of intertwining cultures. Sometimes they are far apart for all of their proximity, but sometimes this togetherness and even hybridity emerges in interesting uh, ways. Now, I've already spoken about the imperial context of the past, but what does all this mean in, right now, in the present, in uh, the context of Russia's war, which is in many ways uh, a continuation of the imperial mindset, imperial aggression of the past? Well, first, I think all of this is important because of the results of Rus Russian propaganda. Uh, Ukrainians' attitudes towards the Jewish past of Ukraine, their Jewish compatriots, have come under a microscope. The darker sides of Ukrainian nationalism have come into focus. It is perhaps in many ways unfair that this should happen in these circumstances through the disingenuousness of uh, Kremlin propaganda. And certainly we shouldn't allow that propaganda to dictate our talking points. But these are topics which carry weight and meaning which are important. And they're, they're important regardless of what Moscow says about them. Ukraine, and, and here I'm talking about the state, but also intellectuals, historians, cultural actors, has to take this seriously. I think it increasingly is taking it seriously. Uh, and it can turn this problem into an opportunity, embracing, celebrating, speaking honestly about the Jewish past will no doubt raise Ukraine's image in the eyes of important allies. Uh, it affords important soft power possibilities for Ukraine. Um, and it has begun to embrace the Jewish cultural figures and historical figures who are connected to Ukraine and who can provide important bridges to Europe, to the US, uh, to Poland, more specifically, or to Israel. Uh, a good example of that is the Agnon Literary Center in Butchach in Western Ukraine. So named after the uh, writer Shmuel Yosef Agnon, who came from that city um, and who wrote, about, wrote very famously about it. And it's a literary center which invites Ukrainian writers to come and reflect on the legacy of Agnon, but also of the history of the city, the history of Ukrainian Jewish uh, coexistence. And has also established uh, links with the um, Agnon House in Jerusalem. And this and similar initiatives are becoming more and more common in Ukraine and more and more central to the cultural process. This, of course, is not all about just looking good in the eyes of 
one's neighbors in the eyes of the US or the EU or of Israel. It's something of a cliche to suggest that Ukraine is a country discovering or rediscovering its identity. This is one thing that as someone who studied Ukrainian culture for a long time, I don't buy. There's one thing you understand studying Ukrainian culture is that this sense of identity and distinctiveness has never gone away. Uh, and it's always been fiercely protected. But of course, a society's sense of itself changes. It reacts to new challenges and Ukraine is certainly reevaluating itself in the face of the most profound of challenges today, uh, Russia's war. Ukrainians are now, I think, increasingly seeing themselves as a nation defined, defined by resistance to empire and imperial oppression, as a post-colonial society that's going through a process of decolonization, uh, and whose values focus on freedom and respect for human rights, the things that have been most uh, denied under empire, and also cultural specificity. With that process, I think, which is already well underway, there must be an understanding of Ukraine as a society that's defined by the diversity and the hybridity of the imperial periphery, which one finds in, in all imperial peripheries. This is a fact that can be challenging to any monolithic notions of identity, but can also be a great source, a great resource when, when identity is understood as as it is increasingly in, in Ukraine in civic terms. Past diversity, cultural interactions that have shaped the present are part of the story and an understanding of this can be turned into a strength in the process of decolonization. Looking towards the Jewish past and particularly its traumatic episodes and particularly the Holocaust, I think will be important for Ukraine in other important ways too. Ukrainians will be living through a process of deep trauma for many years to come. Um, we should not underestimate the, the effects of what's happening right now and the length of time and the difficulty and the complexity of the processes of overcoming those events. They'll be dealing, dealing with the legacy of destroyed cities, of mass atrocities, mass murder, forced migration and displacement. The experience of the country's Jews, whether filtered through local Ukrainian Jews or through diasporas uh, linked to them, will be, I think, a crucial resource in understanding, processing, and overcoming all of these things. Perhaps, indeed, this can be treated on some level as one common experience, albeit one shared in, in disparate and difficult ways. In order to harness this experience in the traumatized present, a focus on dialogue and openness will be indispensable. And as uh, the poet Boris Kersonsky emphasized in a recent interview where he discussed his own commitment to, uh, as a Jew to Ukraine and to its culture, um, he said here that historical traumas are characteristic of the two peoples. I think that if we realize this, then we'll become much more tolerant of each other. Okay, thank you so much for uh, listening and I'll be very keen to answer any questions that you might have. Thanks very much, um, uh, William. I um, uh, wonder whether or not that's, that's great, so we're back. Um, uh,
Look, we have some uh, questions on Slido to kick off with. And um, please do remember that if you want to connect and, and put in a question, it's um, the Slido website and the, the tag is, um, uh, I just need to find it. I think it's at Holocaust Memorial with a capital H. So at Holocaust Memorial with a capital H. But the first question on Slido relates particularly to Holocaust commemoration and asks, how has Holocaust commemoration specifically developed in Ukraine in recent years? Yeah, so I think this is obviously a very important aspect of everything that I've been discussing. Um, and it has developed, um, perhaps looking over the perspective of the 30 years since uh, just over 30 years since Ukrainian independence, relatively slowly. Um, but I think in recent years, and especially after 2014, um, when we had the Maidan revolution, where we had a certain reevaluation of Ukraine's history, its identity, where it wants to be in the world, um, there was an increased interest in historical politics, historical memory. Uh, and there was a very profound reevaluation of the Second World War. So up until then, you know, the, the, the initial years of Ukrainian independence, Ukraine's still sort of following um, that Soviet model of commemorating the Great Patriotic War. A lot of people in Ukraine are still kind of sticking to that, that model. Not everyone, some people pr profoundly disagree with that. Um, and then you see different uh, kind of attempts to combine the two whereby we talk about the Soviet victory and we celebrate that, but we also talk about the Second World War as a, as a great tragedy. We talk about the Holocaust as well. Um, and sort of combining the more, let's say, European model, which focuses on remembrance and focuses on the losses and, and the atrocities and the lessons that can be learned from that um, with that kind of more uh, victory-oriented uh, Soviet discourse. And now we see it sliding kind of more and more towards the European model um, and the, the, the Soviet way of commemorating the Second World War is pretty much uh, disappearing. Um, and we've seen various attempts to um, improve Holocaust commemoration. So I mentioned the very interesting project which happened in the centre of Lviv, um, which was run, organised by the Centre for Urban History in that city, which is a really, really excellent academic uh, center which looks at all questions of urban history but focuses on this, the kind of multi uh, multicultural multi-ethnic nature of many Ukrainian cities and how that's remembered and commemorated and they have a really nice very modern very interesting holocaust memorial in the center of the city now um Babinyar, which we mentioned is you know arguably the most important single site which stands for the Holocaust in Ukraine. So this was the site of some of the first and largest mass shootings uh, of Jews uh, by the Nazis in occupied, in, in occupied Eastern Europe. Um, and for a long time was a place where there was no commemoration. Uh, the, a Soviet monument went up there only in the late 1970s, but didn't mention Jews, didn't mention the Holocaust, just mentioned Soviet citizens who'd been murdered by the, the Nazis. In 19, as soon as we get to 1991, you have this kind of commemorative chaos there. So everything's possible. You know, the, the Jewish 
community can put up a monument there. There's there's a there's a, there's this menorah monument which has been put up there. But we see lots of small monuments uh, around the site because it was a site where lots of different types of people were murdered. Um, so first and foremost, Jews, but also um, Soviet prisoners of war, uh, Ukrainians and Russians, um, uh, Roma, uh, disabled people, uh, Orthodox clergy, uh, and so on. And each of these groups has had their own sort of little commemorative signs. And it's, it was somewhat something of a free-for-all and nobody is really taking ownership of the site. And it's a bit of a mess. So there's, there's none of this censorship of memory as there was before. Uh, and the Jewish presence is there, but it's still very chaotic. Um, and then after 2014, you saw uh, attempts to bring that into some kind of order. Um, it's, it's quite a complicated story, however, the story of that, because you had com competing projects for it. And it wasn't, it's, this wasn't a, case of, a place of a case of Ukrainians had one project and Jews had another. It was two different projects which had Ukrainians and Jews involved in both of them. Um, but one of them, which had all the money, was financed by oligarchs who were either from Russia or maybe had origins in Ukraine but had been living in Russia for a long time. And this raised this whole question of the influence of the Russian narrative, the kind of Soviet slash imperial narrative on the Second World War. Lots of people were worried that through these, this, this being financed by wealthy Russians, it would potentially be uh, manipulated by uh, the Kremlin and the site would be used to kind of manipulate historical politics. Um, it was, the situation there is still, is still unresolved because they were in the process of doing various interesting projects, commemorative, artistic, uh, really lots and lots of things have been happening there. Um, but then the war happened, Babinyar itself was hit by a Russian missile, uh, and now the that memorial project has kind of switched its resources towards um, documenting crimes being committed today. So you can see that that kind of story has been, is being uh, sort of intertwined with the the history and the contemporary situation are intertwined again in this, in this sort of strange ways. Um, but you know, to, to put it sort of briefly, a lot of things are happening. It's not always well coordinated. Um, it's not always necessarily coherent, but it's it's increasingly um, increasingly prominent and increasingly state resources were going into it. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the sort of rather convoluted answer to that question. No, it's a it's a fascinating answer, um, and and of course a part of all of that is about the telling and retelling of the story and the way um, that 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 you traced the development of Ukrainian identity through it. And so um, uh, the second question is that Russia's primary ide or or one of its ideological weapons against the Ukraine is of course the role of the UPA in the Holocaust. Um, is is the war also making Ukrainians think about the role of that organization in the foundation of the Ukrainian state? I mean, it's it's something that has been there, you know, that, so, the, so the UPA or UPA is the Ukrainian insurgent army, which was a large sort of guerrilla army, which existed during the Second World War and which essentially fought for uh, Ukrainian independence against the Soviets. 
and also against the Nazis. Um, it was connected as as a as a as an army. It was connected to a political organization called Ukra Organization Ukrainian Nationalists, which had collaborated quite briefly with the Nazis, which saw its main enemy as the Soviets, but was then itself. Um, the Nazis themselves cracked down on that organization as well. Um, and there are questions of the attitudes and activities of many of the members of these organizations. Um, it's a very, very complicated and controversial question, but you know, it's clear that there, as in all occupied territories throughout Europe, there was an element of collaboration in Ukraine. Um, there was an element of collaboration within these organizations. Uh, and so commemorating them unproblematically heroicizing them today in Ukraine raises questions about, well, what does this say to Ukraine's Jews? What does this say to Jews around the world? And, it's, and, it, and it can be a difficult question, difficult problem to solve, because for many Ukrainians, you know, these, um, it's worth saying also that these things tend to be the uh, confined more or less to the Western parts of Ukraine. Other parts of Ukraine, they're not so popular, not so high profile. Um, you know, if you look at the monuments, for example, they're more in the sort of western sort of quarter or third of Ukraine and not necessarily so much elsewhere. Um, you know, to what extent people, when they commemorate or talk about or mention these organizations, understand that history is an open question. I think when they do endorse them or refer to them, they are either unaware of that history of anti-Semitism, or they try to ignore it. So what it, what it doesn't mean is that people are endorsing anti-Semitism when they talk, when they, when they turn to these figures as figures who fought for Ukrainian independence. That's what's, that's what's the important thing. But there's this lack of knowledge or perhaps unwillingness to look at the complications of this, uh, of this history. Um, and I think it's, it, it, one thing you know that I could certainly say for having studied Ukraine you know for about 20 years or so is that these conversations and these arguments and these fights have been happening quite openly and there's, there's quite a robust debate um it doesn't always happen in the most edifying way but it, you know it, there's an openness there's an openness to criticism there's a freedom to criticize um and I think you know those those debates will continue but I, you know I, I also wouldn't overemphasize the importance of those figures and of those movements. You know, Ukrainians also have a lot of other historical figures who they, they can look back at, like the Ukrainian People's Republic. You know, so after the Maidan protests, there was a big move in historical politics to look at the Ukrainian People's Republic of the, the early 20th century, which was a project which, of course, also had, a, there, there were problematic sides, there were programs at the time, but politically, it was in fact more of a left-wing project. And it was a project which politically tried to include minorities and tried to look at a vision of Ukraine as a, as, as a country of different ethnicities living together, because that, that was the reality of Ukraine at the time. Uh, and that, you know, so for example, that's also part of the, of the commemorative landscape of the memory landscape in Ukraine, but that doesn't kind of attract the attention maybe of a lot of, foreign journalists, for example, because it's not quite as interesting, it's not quite as controversial as, you know, wartime Second World War collaboration. But that does lead very naturally to the next question, which is, 
Could you comment on the position of minorities in Ukraine more broadly in the context of the war and the political upheavals there in the last nine years? Yeah, so, I mean, this is also um, an important question. Uh, Ukraine, you know, these days, not as diverse as it has been historically, um, because to a large extent, because of the Second World War, because of the Holocaust, and because of Soviet, also Soviet deportations of uh, various groups after the war, you know, the Poles, uh, in particular, the Crimean Tatars. Um, but still a diverse place, still a place where um, there are various different minorities. And what you see, I think what you saw, you know, initially, um, under the Soviet Union, it would be difficult, and even going back further in history, why would someone who was a Jew or a Crimean Tatar or a Pole or a Hungarian or a Romanian living in sort of Ukrainian, let's say, loosely defined ethnic lands where Ukrainians are, are, are a majority, why would they buy into the Ukrainian national project when that's not a project which is in power? It's not a project which can offer them anything, really. Um, when but you see that changing a little bit, even under Soviet Ukraine, when you had a state which was, albeit it's completely sub, sub, um, uh, completely under the control of the Soviet Union and from Moscow, but is, is this independent quasi-autonomous you know, uh, state which has Ukrainian language, Ukrainian culture as the language and culture of officialdom and, and of prestige, that was the idea. And then you see, People who are not Ukrainian turning towards those lang the, the language and the culture, because because it can offer them something. Um, after independence, you see quite slowly uh, people who are not ethnic Ukrainians turning towards the idea of a Ukrainian civic nation, and that really after Maidan especially that became very important. You know, you you saw that it was certainly clear that. Among the Ukrainian Jewish community, people were very much behind the Maidan. They were very much behind the idea of, you know, protecting basic freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, um, you know, democratic, protecting democracy. Who wouldn't be behind that? Um, and when you had, you know, we have the Ukrainian National Project, which is sort of based in Ukrainian culture and language, associated with the struggle for rights and democracy, then it starts to become attractive to everybody. And that's why you can see also in the case of Crimean Tatars, for example, who, I mean, we should be honest, in the first couple of decades of Ukrainian independence were pretty much ignored by the state. And there are specific problems in Crimea, which is, which is a sort of complicated case in its own, were not necessarily taken into consider consideration as much as they should have been. Since the annexation, Crimean Tatars have become very, very central to kind of political life and cultural life in Ukraine. And, and people have been sort of trying to catch up with uh, the Crimean Tatars as an important part of the Ukrainian civic nation. And they certainly, you know, some, some Crimean Tatars, you know, we could talk about Jamala, who won the Eurovision Song Contest, you know, not a trivial thing, actually. Um, or people like film director uh, Artem Setablayev, who's one, probably the number one film director in Ukraine, or at least one of them. Uh, today, um, you can see people really buying into this civic idea of a civic Ukraine, a European Ukraine, a democratic Ukraine, which, and, and, and buying into that and being part of that project can help protect you from the erosion of, the, of those things, of, of democracy, of rights that's represented by Russia today. 
Look, thank you very much, um, Olyam. And I think uh, as I listened to you talking, both um, in your answers to questions, but also in your address itself, the thing that um, uh, kept coming back as 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 a kind of continual theme was the extent to which these issues um, in anti-Semitism, these issues in the history of the mid 20th century, and in particular, the Holocaust, are identity constituent, uh, constituting not only for um, Ukraine, but for at least all European peoples and many beyond. And therefore, to think through that issue <clears throat> in the specific use case of Ukraine and its relationship with Russia um, has been absolutely fascinating. But I think must bring each of us back to that question about ordinary people, about you know what what in what ways does the culture that I find myself a part in um, and that I help both to constitute to constitute and am constituted by, in what in what ways is that marked by the same patterns of behaviour of ideology of belief um, that led to the industrial slaughter of so many million people in the middle of the twenty uh, of the twentieth century. So um, thank you very much for um, your presentation. And I just encourage everybody who's listening to become a part of either one of ours or, or other Holocaust um, Day Memorial events over the coming week. Thank you. Thank you.